But then the next visit was to Fogel, and he said, well, the first thing I've got to do is to find out whether any of these people are bearers of secrets who will not be allowed out under any circumstances. Welcome to Cold War Conversations. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This is Radio Star Czechoslovakia, the legitimate voice of occupied Czechoslovakia. And I'm here to host this final program from the German Democratic Republic for you. Colin Munro was the British Deputy Head of Mission in East Berlin from 1987 to 1990. Now I need you to concentrate for this next bit. The UK did not recognise East Berlin as part of the GDR. However, in 1973 it established an embassy to the GDR, not in the GDR, in East Berlin to provide a diplomatic presence. As deputy head of mission, Colin was effectively the deputy ambassador and was responsible for improving trade, ensuring correct dealings on the status of Berlin and to try and promote peaceful change. Now, I could really use your support to help me to continue to produce these podcasts. A monthly donation of $4, £3 or €3 via Patreon will really help. And you will get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Thank you so much to our generous financial supporters who help to keep us on the air. Back to today's episode, Colin tells of life in the embassy with some fascinating insights into the unique difficulties of being a diplomat in a capital city that the UK did not recognise. We welcome Colin to our Cold War conversation. After I'd finished in Romania, I was back in the FCO's Western European Department. And this had originally been the German Department, and we dealt with both German states and Berlin, and a little bit of uh, what was called Berlinology. Our standpoint was uh, that Germany was divided into two states, which we recognized as states, but the Germany Germany within its frontiers of 1937 continued to exist, and the four victorious powers, Britain, France, the Soviet Union, and the U.S., had continuing responsibilities for Berlin and Germany as a whole. Berlin, in our view, was still divided into four sectors. And so East Berlin was not the capital of the GDR. We had no view on what the capital of the GDR was. We had our embassy in East Berlin, but it was the embassy to the GDR in East Berlin Uh, and uh, we refused to uh, deal with any East German entities such as the Ministry of Defense, 
which were in flagrant contradiction of the uh, demilitarized status, as, as far as Germans were concerned, of the city. And the, the Russians had gone along with this in an agreement, uh, or at least with some of this, in an agreement in 1971, which was in fact the basis of the East, West Germany's Ostpolitik. The, the city had been divided by the wall in 1961, and this agreement of 1971 between the four powers regulated uh, a sort of modus vivendi in the city, which defused it as a source of international tension, uh, allowed uh, cooperation between East and West uh, uh, Germany, and did not affect what were known as quadripartite rights and responsibilities. And the Russians were interested in these as well, because they maintained the, so, uh, the main Soviet war memorial was in the British sector of Berlin, and they exercised, the Russians exercised their right uh, to travel around West Berlin and indeed around West Germany. All the, the four powers had military missions to each other's forces. Ours was called Bricksmith, and, it's had a, and they all had a headquarters in Potsdam, and they were accredited to the Soviet armed forces. Uh, and it was basically a spying operation, and the Russians were doing the same in West Germany. Anyway, all this, all this, uh, this infrastructure continued, uh, but in uh, West Berlin, of course, the, uh, the occupying powers had become so-called protecting, uh, protecting powers, and this whole structure meant that the German question was still open in international law and it was the responsibility of the, the foreign office's western european department to see that this uh, that all the intricate details of these uh, necessary to maintain this status uh, such as not allowing your passport to be stamped by east germans in east berlin was maintained uh, and so I had this responsibility for several years in London, and then uh, in the, as number two in the embassy in East Berlin, I really had three main tasks. Improve our modest trade with East Germany, see that uh, we were correct in our dealings with the East German authorities uh, on, the whole, on the whole status issues, which were to be handled by the British military government in West Berlin with the Russians and not by us. Uh, and, of course, tried to promote peaceful evolutionary change and also keep the embassy running. We had, uh, when I arrived, we had a, an ambassador who was a sort of brilliant uh, trade negotiator and deal maker, but was not really uh, familiar with, uh, too familiar with uh, Kremlinology. Yeah. So I had a uh, quite a, a sort of a challenging upward management role. That all changed when he retired and was replaced by one of our most brilliant Sovietologists who just died recently, Nigel Broomfield, a great, great friend of mine, who later became ambassador to the United Germany. The, the first thing that happened after I arrived was that Honecker at last got to make a visit that he had been aspiring to make for many years, and that was a visit, quasi-state visit, to West Germany. 
Um, yeah. and this took place in September 1987, and it was a most, an extra, most extraordinary affair. The West Germans greeted him with all possible honors. In some ways, they did, gave him more honors than would have been accorded to any other state visitor. He went to his place of his birth in the Saarland. The West Germans got one concession out of him, and that was that there could be a vast increase in the number of people below pensionable age who were allowed to visit West Germany on so-called uh, Familienangelegenheiten, sort of family matters. And so it, if it was your auntie's birthday, you could apply to go. Uh, of course, the East Germans, try, I remember vividly, uh, our neighbors, mother was allowed to go to West Germany. And the seven-year-old said, I want to go with mummy to see uh, to see my auntie as well. The nine-year-old says, oh, you don't understand. We've got to say here is the deposit that mummy comes back. And so you could, I mean, you see children knew it all. And the reaction in, in the first year after this visit, uh, about a million people made such visits. And their rea- the, re- the universal reaction was, uh, this this place, West Germany, which we it's much nicer than what we can see on television. That's a significant number of people, and of course the West Germans went out, uh, uh, provided uh, sort of funding for all this. I mean, it, it was it was it was extraordinary. So they were getting so you know that if you multiply that over a number of years, then you've got a significant proportion who have been exposed to the West and its uh, seductive... Uh... Yes, yes, that's right. And not just pensioners, because the, the, the old joke, I mean, the, as, as usual in communist countries, uh, you survive on the black humour, you know. When, when do you... What's the age of majority in the East Germany? Answer, 65, because then you're allowed to travel. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, the GDR, GDR didn't want the pensioners back either. No, they wanted them to stay. The West Germans should pay for them. Absolutely. Yes, that's right. That's right. I had, uh, oh, this was in August 1988, and I was in charge of the, the was on leave. And we had a sit-in. You know, people were always sitting in in the, in the West German permanent representation and, and so on, and trying to force through their... Uh, escape to West mm. Germany, and so we got a. We had a sit-in in our embassy. Uh, two families, sixteen people, and two dogs. <laughs> and I thought, especially because of the two dogs, this was probably a provocation. Uh, but it turned out not to be. And um, we had as our legal advisor the famous lawyer Fogel, who did all these, uh, who did all these uh, uh, negotiated. Uh, the, the spy exchanges because he did was he the the bridge of spies lawyer yes he did the gary powers that was how he got started yes 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 you're right anyway i told my staff not to be too friendly to them but of course with dogs and kids it was just impossible there was a there was soon something like a party going on down in our reception area <laughs> which we had to close um anyway i went round to the 
East Ger- uh, to the West Germans and gave them the list of the, of the list of names. And I and I saw the the chap who was in charge of all this, the number two for the ministry. He was from the Ministry of Inner German Affairs, and he looked at it. He said, Mr. Munro, this is going to cost us an awful lot of money <laughs> <laughs> to, get these, to get these people sorted out. Yeah, because at that point, the East Germans were charging, weren't they, uh, for, for anybody who was went over to the West? It depended on your... Uh, you know, more for a doctor than for a bricklayer. Yeah. Um, and so uh, then the next visit was to Fogel. And he said, well, the first thing I've got to do is to find out whether any of these people are bearers of secrets who will not be allowed out under any circumstances. So he did that. And he said, no, there are no Geheimnisträger secret bears there. He said, now, he said, your job is to persuade them that they cannot leave your embassy and go and, and, and trot over to Checkpoint Charlie. They are going to have to go back home and then we will negotiate and eventually you, you can have my word for it. They'll get out. Um, and I and then I so I had to to start trying to persuade these people that that was mm. the case, and they were deeply suspicious, and I could see that they didn't trust me and all the rest of it. And and I said to Fogel, I think you're going to have to come and talk to them yourself. And he said that is absolutely the last resort, because if I do this for one group. I'll have to do it for every group, and it's uh, and we'll we'll never finish. Um, and so negotiations went on for days and days, and eventually I did persuade them that we would uh, visit them. They came from Turingia. We would visit them. We would keep an eye on their fate, and we would ensure no, no bad things happened to them. Right. And so that was um, that was uh, August 1988. They got out in June 1989. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> yeah. And just uh, as I was engaged in this negotiations, there was a sit-in at the Danish embassy. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. And the reason why there was a sit-in there was because people had found out that the Danish Prime Minister was due in town. And the Danish ambassador made a most horrendous mistake. 
he authorised the Fox Polizei to clear his embassy because he didn't want a bunch of asylum seekers spoiling his prime ministerial visit. And his staff uh, and the rest of us, we begged him not to do this, but, but he did. And eventually he, of course, it all happened at a weekend when there was nobody to consult available in Denmark. They were all on the beaches. Yeah. Uh, uh, this was this colossal error of judgment. Uh, he was humiliated. He had to leave the Foreign Service and died shortly thereafter. Wow. But that, that is incredible that he thought that that was a viable option. I mean, inviting East Germans onto their territory. Well, you see, your, your embassy is your sovereign territory. Yeah. yeah. But you, as it's your sovereign territory, you're the sovereign, and you have the right, and you have, if you have the, uh, so for example, if, if the place catches fire, you have the right you 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 authorize the local fire brigade to put it out yeah yeah i guess there is that yeah <laughs> yeah uh, but this uh, this uh, I, mean, I mean the east germans themselves they were amazed they said you really want us to do this yeah they probably thought it was a trick um, to start with <laughs> so this was quite regularly was this quite regularly happening in other nato embassies then people sort of coming in uh, and... no, mainly the west german ones right okay in fact they had an annex of their um, the, the, the West Germans didn't have a, an embassy because they said it was not a foreign country. Yeah. So they had what, what was called the permanent representation. Right. The DDR ist ein Staat, aber ist nicht Ausland. So that so that takes us into nineteen. 19- Eighty-nine. Can I just ask a few um, a few other questions? Because you mentioned yes. trade. What trade was the UK having with the GDR? Well, we had with the GDR, um, as with all the communist countries, we had a, a trade was conducted via a, a so-called joint commission. Um, in the on our side, it consisted of. Uh, uh, you know, government representatives, Foreign Office, Department of Trade and Industry, maybe the Bank of England, uh, maybe the Department of Energy, and also representatives of firms that were doing uh, business with the uh, with the GDR. Yeah. And um, I suppose the firm that did the most business with the GDR was ICI which had a, a very profitable line in trade in bulk chemicals, for which the uh, East, East Germany produced competitive, uh, competitive prices at enormous environmental cost. Um, and what we were trying to do uh, was to a big contract, which would, as it were, raise the level uh, to the, the trade level to new dimensions. Mm. And we were supporting a company which has, uh, I think, long since gone out of business called Davy McKee. And they had developed a process uh, <clears throat> for cleaning up the emissions uh, from power stations powered by uh, lignite, yeah. brown coal, which is very dirty. Yeah. Um, and the East Germans depended 
for an enormous part of their energy production on brown coal. And this was called a Rauch, in German, a, a Rauchgas-Entschwefelungsanlage. And uh, Davy McKee had won an environmental prize for such uh, a facility, for such a power station in West Germany. So, uh, and, the, and the East Germans said that they were willing to buy a power station, uh, 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 well, this uh, desulfurization plant uh, from Davy McKee. And so the, uh, there were laborious negotiations, which, the, and the, of course, the embassy's job was to support Davy McKee. And in the case of East Germany, like with other communist countries, you had to go through sort of trade intermediaries. These were uh, sort of brokers who took a cut. You could not deal directly with the East German enterprise in question. Mm. You had to deal with these rascals. Yeah. Uh, uh, they took, took 10% basically for being the grit and the oyster. It was agreed that uh, David McKee would uh, provide this uh, desulfurization plant and they would build it, and it would be to their standards. But the East Germans insisted there's got to be sort of local content and uh, from, uh, from our production. And uh, Davy McKee made what turned out to be a mistake. Uh, it was agreed that the instrumentation, which would measure uh, what was going on, would be provided by the, by the East Germans. Right. So the plant was built, and it didn't function properly. And the uh, the Davy McKee found that they were having to uh, the metals, the metal was was corroding, uh, and in the end they had to line uh, they had to line a whole uh, masses of pipework with platinum. Wow. <laughs> and after the fall of the wall, we found out what had been going on. The, the, uh, the desulfurization plant worked on, the spec on, on, on a specification that, say, 40% of the, uh, I've forgotten the exact figures now, but say 40% of what you were feeding into the, uh, the power station to be burned, mm. was actually capable of producing energy. But what these Germans had been doing was f filling it with gunge, and it, and it, and it was, uh, only had about 10% calorific value. And their instruments had all been rigged to say the contrary. Yeah. <laughs> and so there was... A, uh, uh, and this is, so this was a you know an example, and they of course were complaining that Davy McKee's uh, 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 plant was not up to standard and all the rest of it, and you know you had a sort of a trade dispute. Yeah, yeah. But we had other, um, there were other, uh, we had quite a, a quite a reasonable uh, machine tool business in those. Britain had a machine tool industry in those days, mm. and there was printing machinery. And, um, oh, and at one point, we were very successful. We, uh, a British company, 
supplied a plant for uh, packing bread, sliced bread, best things in sliced bread <laughs> in cellophane, in in in, in, cell, in, in cellophane packs. Yeah, and this was this was a high tech innovation, and uh, and they got they got a contract for packing sweets and goodness knows what. So with persistence and by identifying. Uh, opportunities, and then presenting, uh, uh, having firms uh, at the very, at the Leipzig trade fairs and so on. Yeah, uh, we were gra- we were gradually making, uh, gradually making progress. Right, and we were doing all the, uh, we were trying to build up our cultural exchange program and all the rest of it, uh, and so we were uh, we were quite we were quite busy, but it was uh, you know fairly fairly hard pounding yeah and importing stuff from the gdr i mean i'm aware of practica and uh some of the film they produced yes, the orvo well, film um i think you see ilford do you remember ilford cameras yeah i think their their uh their film processing uh came from east germany wolfen right it's a place called wolfen um and then for a time, uh, Wartburgs were imported to the UK. Yeah, somebody posted an ad or emailed me an advert for, for one. Yes. £700 yes, you could yes, buy yes. it for. <laughs> yes. And, oh, MFI furniture. That was made in East Germany. Right. Okay. I knew that IKEA had used East Germany. I wasn't aware of MFI. Oh, yes, they did. MFI. It, it was nearly all from East Germany. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. We were at a disadvantage as compared with the West Germans, though, because uh, the West Germans financed trade by means of a so-called swing credit. Uh, that was one thing. And then the other thing was that whenever a West an East German enterprise was on the brink of collapse for want of spare parts, they just got in touch with the brothers in West Germany who, uh, who patched it up for them. <laughs> and what is more, East German exports could be exported to West Germany without any customs dues. They had a backdoor by a protocol to the Treaty of Rome. They had uh, free customs-free access uh, to West Germany. The, the goods were not supposed to be exported onwards within the European Union, but uh, who knows what happened. But in practice, uh, they, uh, uh, there was a, uh, East Germany was, was in a customs union with West Germany. Oh, well, Theresa May could do with knowing that. She, she could take some tips from that, yes. <laughs> um. Did you did you meet Honecker in person? I didn't meet him in person to have a conversation with him. No, the ambassador, uh, the ambassador, they were very very protocolaire, uh, and the ambassador got. They had you know functions at which you could go and talk to members of the Politburo and so on, and they used to have an annual uh, shooting, you know, hunting, you know. Oh yeah, Honecker was very keen on that. He was very keen on that. Yeah. Yes. Um, so the ambassador got to meet Honecker, but uh, the number two, the number two didn't. Uh, but I met quite a few of the. Uh, I, I, I remember conversations with Axon, 
who was the Politburo member for uh, for foreign affairs. Um, the, the, the system was, like in all communist countries, the real power was the Politburo. The government was a, basically executive organs. The, uh, and so the foreign minister, for example, Oscar Fischer, he wasn't a member of the Politburo. Right. Gromyko in, in the Soviet Union was, but not, 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 uh, not uh, uh, Fischer. And we met uh, quite senior people in the whole foreign trade apparatus and then oh we had a social security agreement with these germans and i knew the minister the minister of health we had him on an official visit to britain and uh, no i mean the, uh, and of course contact with ordinary people was really really actually quite easy much easier than in uh, much easier than in uh, Romania, and there were people in certain professions. Of course, there were people who kept their distance um, because, of, uh, you know, the whole security apparatus and all that. But for example, uh, medical doctors were in short supply, and they knew they couldn't. These Germans couldn't possibly sort of, you know, imprison them or make their life uh, make their life difficult. So you would have medical doctors who, who didn't care about bans on contact with Westerners and all the rest of it. Right. Um, there were people. Uh, uh, the Soviet bloc embassies had a completely different range of contacts. And I was, was, uh, was quite lucky. Um, I developed uh, relations of real, actually a real friendship with the Pole, the Polish number two, and the Hungarian number two, and indeed the Romanian and the Czechs. And all these, the ambassadors were mostly, uh, were mostly apparatchiks who couldn't speak German and had been sent to East Berlin as a, as a punishment posting. You know, <laughs> the, Pole, the, Pole, the Pole would say to me, why have we got this awful sod here? Well, it's a punishment posting for him. Germany and the wrong sort of money. <laughs> yeah. And and did those those number twos give you a sense of being in the reformist camp or, or still being hardline? Uh the Pole was reformist. The Hungarian was an ardent reformist. And he was actually one of my best sources. I'll come on to that in a minute. Right. In a minute. The the Czech the Czech as usual was sitting on the friends, uh, and the Romanian was uh, shifty. Um, the the Yugoslav was the Yugoslav was also very good value, and these people uh, meetings with uh, on the party on the on the party network and could give you insights into what was what was really going on in the Politburo. Uh, and then my best source, bar none, would you believe it, was an Ethiopian. Right. Why was that? This guy uh, had worked for the BBC, and at this point, at this time, uh, Ethiopia was being run by a Marxist dictatorship, Mengistu Haile Mariam, mm -hmm. and so the Ethiopians had brotherly relations with the East Germans who were very interested in, in Africa. 
And this guy had been kept on by the, the communists, although uh, because he was a fluent German speaker. And so they needed him for the meetings. Yeah. And uh, when, as, uh, but he, uh, we used to sort of meet surreptitiously and talk over old times. And then when the, um, when things began hotting up after June uh, 1989, he would sort of de- uh, The Ethiopians were alarmed about what was happening and sent party delegations. And uh, my friend had to interpret for him. For me. And he, as he, he, used to, he used to tell me what was going on. And uh, he, said there was one, he said there was one famous occasion. There was a trade union delegation from Ethiopia. And this was in August 1989. Mm. And the, the, the head of the trade union, it was called the Freie Deutsche Gewerkschaftsbund. They had their offices next to our embassy, actually. And we said FDGB stood for Für die Guten Beziehungen. And anyway, Harry Tisch, uh, in his cups, had said, well, the Hungarians, by opening their frontier, they've, they've put the kibosh on the GDR, it'll be it'll be gone within a year. Right. Wow. Because um, the wall had been built to prevent the state yeah. from imploding. The Hungarians had opened it, and so it would implode. Yeah. And Harry Tisch was quite famous for his uh, drinking. That's right. Yeah, he was a drunkard. Yes. Yes. Wow. But in Vino Veritas, as it were. Yeah. yeah. So e- even within the Politburo, they could see the writing on the wall with hung- Hungary opening well, the border. Sort of. The trouble was uh, that they were. Uh, it was uh, by this time, it was a group of elderly men, uh, and they, they were victims of their own propaganda, and they didn't know any way out because. Uh, they regard the poles uh, the poles and the hungarians were uh offside uh and um and gorbachev was betraying communism yeah and so th- they wouldn't have perestroika in the gdr because of the, because if you had gorbachev type reforms the whole question the whole question of the uh, you know the the validity of the state would uh, come up, and indeed there was uh, the SED and the SPD had started a sort of a, di- a dialogue, and um, in September 1989, when things were really hotting up, um, one of the SED's chief ideologues gave an interview to the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung. And he said, "If the uh, without the uh, communist ideology, uh, there is no justification for the East German state." That must have gone down uh, well when he uh, when that was published. Well, I, uh, I, I said uh, this was after the Hungarians had opened their opened their. Bo- border mm. because what happened was that the the hungarians uh, had concluded a bilateral agreement with east germany in 1969 that they would not allow 
um, and all the communist countries had these with agreements with each other, they would not allow tourists to cross their frontiers to the West. Yeah. And the Hungarians had dismantled their frontier uh, fortifications and, and denounced, the, uh, denounced the agreement. Yeah. And the Hungarian number two, as I, was, as I told you, was a friend of mine, and he said, well, we've had it up to there with the East Germans. They're saying we know what communism is because Marx was a, Marx was a German. And, 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 and anyway, he admitted that West Germans, are, West Germans are paying us off. Yeah, yeah, which was... which so was switching the, sides. Yeah, which was the... the ad- absolutely the case um i think uh, you you mentioned that you had a meeting in moscow in may 89 oh yes yes i was a i was a, a, a participated in meetings of something called the politische club berlin this was a sort of a german speaking think tank which had been founded uh, i think in 1968 after the invasion of czechoslovakia by a sort of uh, an eccentric idealist who was a who was actually born in Britain, but he'd fought in the uh, just towards the end of the war and had escaped and all the rest. And he was a he, he was on a one-man mission to, to promote friendly relations between east between east and west. And he founded a sort the sort of talking shop that the West uh, the Germans love. Um, and um, they had regular meetings on a sort of a Monday night in a West, in a West German, in a West Berlin hotel, mm-hmm. and then they had, um, and then they had what they called Projekt Tagungen, and it was all under the auspices of the OSCE, you see, and so the West German, the West Berlin Senat, Senat had lots of money for 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 what was called Berlin Förderung, so they put up money for this, and so. Um, these meetings uh, took place sometimes uh, there was a wonderful meeting in Italy in very lavish surroundings Uh, and then there was I organized one in Edinburgh and got a lot of East Germans to attend Um, and you got people from a few from East Germany definitely from Poland definitely from Hungary very much pure from Czechoslovakia and lots of Russians who were keeping an eye on what was going on. <laughs> and these and these people were from sort of institutes for economic affairs, uh, and including including what was called the institute, uh, a Moscow-based institute for the world study of the world socialist system, headed up by a guy called Bogomolov, and. And he had a representative in the Russian embassy, in uh, Soviet embassy in East Berlin, became a friend of mine. And he said, well, this is turning into the Institute for the Study of the World Capitalist System, actually. <laughs> um, and, uh, and again, uh, the, the, in, the, in the plenary sessions, um, things would be a bit sterile. But then during the coffee breaks and at the bar and everything, it was... It was like this Madrid conference, only more so. And then, anyway, a meeting was organized uh, in for May 1989 in Moscow, and the Russians agreed. Uh, the Russians agreed to host it, and 
I went to the meeting, but uh, there'd been a pre-tour, a pre-meeting tour to the Baltic states. I didn't go on that because we weren't allowed to go to the Baltic states because we didn't recognize their incorporation in the Soviet Union. Right. But anyway, the Western participants arrived in Moscow saying, well, the message here we're getting in places like Latvia is out of the Soviet Union into the uh, into the European Union. That's what we want. And so discussions unfolded. As this meeting was going on, uh, Gorbachev was just finishing his uh, visit to to China, and we were report. People were reporting that, that uh, you know the Warsaw Pact was would come to an end, and the uh, and the division of Germany might be in question, and all the rest of it. Mm. And then on the on the second day of the conference, the the Russian uh, the Soviet Foreign Ministry, which is a very hard line, they sent in their most some of their most senior people to uh, who made thunderous statements that the division of Germany was the result of the Second World War and there would be no change. Uh, and, um, you know, the Hungarians and the Poles were telling, uh, uh, telling us in the coffee breaks up to these guys, in time these guys are going to catch the tide of history, you'll see. Uh, so you could see that, and, and also it was very interesting being in uh, Moscow in May 1989. It was beginning to be a bit like sort of Hyde Park Corner, but there was nothing in the shops. Right. Right. Uh, you know, the uh, the economic and the, the sort of provisioning crisis was was evident for you know even for a sort of superficial visit visitor to see. Yeah. So, um, so it, it was a. a, a, a Absolutely fascinating, absolutely fascinating meeting. And then I went to see, I had some side meetings, and I went to see uh, Mr. Bogomolov, mm. and he said, uh, tell me, Mr. Monroe, is the British, is it really the British government's position that you would be uh, in favor of the unification of Germany under certain conditions? And I said, well, I said, well, yes, that's the position that we've been defending for uh, 40 years. And Mr. Bogomolov said, well, I, th- I think your official position is a little bit it's somewhat hypocritical because you don't actually think it's going to come about. Uh, and so I said, well, uh, I said, who can tell what will happen in 100 years? But as of now, uh, uh, our position is, as I've uh, uh, just stated, I've just stated it to you, and I uh, and I reminded him of uh, Article Seven of the Bonn Paris Conventions, uh, which we look forward to the day when Germany be may be reunited and have under a liberal liberal democratic constitution, and so we and so we left it at that. Right, right, and then in in the the next month you had the the solidarity election, and then yes, that's and right, Gorbachev's that's right. visit I mean, to West Germany. Uh, uh, I mean, the, 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 there were really dramatic developments taking place 
around East Germany at that time. You had, uh, for uh, Hungary, you had uh, not only the, the, uh, the decision on, you know, dismantling the border with Austria, mm. but also the... Uh, uh, the um, redefinite, you know, the, the Hungarian Revolution was no longer the sort of traitorous act and all the rest of it. And uh, the multi party system was coming into effect. Yeah. Uh, and, in Hung- and in Poland, indeed, you had uh, the Solidarity's uh, victory at the elections. And, uh, and at the same time, in June 1989, you had Gorbachev's visit to West Germany, and you also had uh, the crackdown in Tiananmen Square on the on the Chinese uh, on the Chinese um, you know, democracy yeah. uh, movement, uh, which was praised uh, by by Egon Krenz as the way to deal with uh, protesters. Yes, and and so there were, you know, great fears later that year as to whether Krenz would impose a, a Chinese solution. Right. So uh, and so the the one, uh, as it as it appeared at the time, uh, a sort of stable neighbour to the GDR uh, was Czechoslovakia, which was still. In the grip of the, uh, in the grip of the hardliners, and we have further photos, videos, and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, this podcast would not exist without our generous Patreons, and I would like to especially thank our Politburo level members who contribute a generous 30 US dollars a month each to help keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Frederick Esposito and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters to help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.